Click Z podcast with Tim Flagg. Insight, opinion and advice from the leading practitioners in digital marketing and e-commerce. It is the, the most significant data protection law that's ever been introduced. This is the Click Z digital marketing podcast. and I'm joined today by Peter Miller. We'll be talking about the impact of the GDPR on global advertising. Peter Miller is the Chief Data Officer for Sint, where he has expertise in a wide range of information technology, market research, data privacy, and security subjects. Peter has held senior IT and management positions at a number of research companies, including Survey Sampling International, Harris Interactive, and Roper Starch Worldwide. He currently holds leadership roles in several industry workgroups and committees in technology, data privacy, and data security compliance, government affairs, ISO, and internet research. So who better to ask about GDPR and the impact it's going to have on advertising, both in the EU and in the US? So Peter, I'd like to welcome you to the ClickZ podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here, and I'm really looking forward to finding out more about the GDPR. But I wonder whether we could start off by finding out a little bit more about you. And could you tell us your story? How did you end up as the Chief Digital Officer at Sint? And what does Sint do? I am a a career-long technology and compliance professional. I actually ended up doing compliance work from being in uh, technology and operational leadership roles. Um, we're often asked about information security, and as uh, data protection and privacy law evolved, um, I ended up doing more and more of that work. Um, actually, my title is, because Synth is a market research company, technically, so the title is Chief Data Officer, so I'm responsible for all data, really, in the sense, focusing mostly on compliance. Um, Synth is a, a company that has a platform, which uh, Synth refers to as an insights exchange, and it's a, it's a disintermediator um, in the space. Its primary line of business is selling access to highly profiled, engaged audiences. And Synth does that via an exchange model where they, um, they build panels from various companies that have uh, panels that are designed for customer engagement, um, panel market research, um, other types of uses that are put into the exchange where they can monetize it. And buyers um, of insights with access to audiences can, can, can access those people. The particular strength about the offering is that it brings together currently 15,000 individual sources, which satisfies both the, uh, the marketers because the access to a wide range of highly profiled individuals um, and also from the market researchers who like the fact that it's diversity of source and variability. Um, and it's really, it's, uh, it's taking market share from additional leaders. And the more traditional model is where these companies that, you know, see themselves as uh, market research sample providers, primarily they build their own proprietary panels and they manage them and engage them. And it's a different business model. And uh, our model is, uh, is resonating um, very well. And is it anonymized or is it identifiable data that you're using? Yeah, it contains necessary personal data profiling and contact. Um, however, users of the platform, um, they ha- we, we direct these individuals, data subjects in the GDPR context, um, to the survey or research or other opportunities in a research context. So the buyer of it does not receive any personal data. 
there are some use cases where that's permitted and that's done under contract. It sounds like you've got a lot of experience over the last couple of decades of working in the data space and you've seen best practice for compliance. How have you seen that compliance change over the last 10 years before we've started really thinking about GDPR? The turning point was in the late 90s when the industry started to move from other methods of uh, of uh, engaging people and getting their um, opinions, their behavior, uh, their reported behavioral information from telephone surveys or in-person surveys have gone to online. And with that, the EU was a leader with the data directive, I mean, which was, you know, around technically since the mid-90s. Um, and then more and more privacy law evolving. In the past 10 years, um, there's been a heightened sensitivity with players like Facebook, um, Google, Amazon, you know, the Google, the duopoly of, uh, of Google and Amazon is interesting because there's a whole second tier market of various players that have attempted to band together to take them on. The GDPR is a, uh, is, you know, is, is, is a major piece of legislation and it's, uh, it really is uniquely European. In Europe, their personal data, the protection of it is a basic human right. And the United States is looked upon as an asset. And we get into the GDPR, it's interesting because there's a flurry of activity right now, a lot of misunderstanding because it's so detailed, and I was involved um, in, a, in a forum I belong to where we had very well-skilled lawyers disagreeing on interpretations of clauses, so it's actually very interesting. Great. I'd like to come back and dig into a little bit more about the GDPR in just a moment. Are you seeing it being more important now for marketers to have the skill set that would allow them to not only understand the compliance issues, but also understand the data management best practice. So are they becoming more data analysts than marketers now? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we look at the market research vertical, I'm also a consultant for um, for the one of the market research associations called the Insights Association. Um, the, um, you know, their sister organization really is an organization called SMR in the EU and there's various national organizations like the MRS in the UK. Um, a big challenge for them as the revenue moves is to figure out how to be um, data analysts and how to participate in the marketing ecosystem. Yes, and the issue of data governance, which is really long precluded the concept of, you know, high awareness of data protection. Because if you don't have good data governance and know how to get that data and analyze it and keep the data um, available and also um, consistent with internal consistency, et cetera, um, you are not going to get good insights or results out of it. I mean, one of the issues I see is that in the advertising space, um, there are a lot of analysts who don't come from like the classically trained sort of. Uh, educational statistics or statistical background that are more marketing scientists, you know, and the questions that they have is, well, they're modeling all this behavior based on web traffic, but they don't give us any kind of normative baseline to what that is. But to your point, I think that's very important. The ones that are going to be successful are going to develop skills in accessing that data, accessing that data legally and manipulating it, reducing it, and analyzing it. Thank you for that overview. It's been great to get a bit of context before we dive in to talk about GDPR in more detail. We're just going to take a quick break there, and then we're going to come back and really open up what GDPR is. Hi there, it's Tim here, and I've got a favor to ask. If you're enjoying listening to the Clixie podcast today, could you please leave us a quick review? 
just navigate to the review tab in iTunes or Stitcher and either share some stars or leave a comment. Not only would I be really, really grateful, but this also helps other people to discover the podcast. Thanks so much in advance. Now back to the podcast. So Peter, before the break, you gave us some great context there on why data has become such an important part of marketing and how it's been evolving and the sort of precursors to GDPR. Data has often been called the oil of the new economy, the new digital economy. Um, Do you think it matters who owns this oil? That's an excellent question. Um, In fact, you know, one of the things that Sint talks about is this concept, marketing intelligence, marketing science. It's all about data, you know, and they actually, you know, regularly use the term data being the new oil, right? There is this desire for a 360 degree view. Um, and in fact, margin and growth goals are driving companies' investments. If one looks at the private equity money, um, with respect to the, mar- the market research vertical I'm primarily practicing in, I mean, now they're looking at companies that can access that data and monetize that data. Interestingly enough, it's about control, but it's about access. Sin is a platform that enables this stuff. So Sin does, does not own the data, but they're a critical player in connecting uh, companies that have access to audiences. Um, with those people that that want to get to them. Um, So it's about controlling, using that data. And GDPR is critical because what I'm seeing more and more, the marketers and the advertisers that were very happy to look at, you know, placements of uh, of online advertising, for example, based upon uh, analysis of website behavior. I mean, so where they, they go to, if they go to one they go somewhere to research a product and where they go to potentially buy it and where they buy it. And they take all kinds of other measures. They build uh, profiles on these people. More and more, there's an interest in getting people's personal data and connecting that with Facebook profiles, connecting that with other sources of consented permission data and understanding um, what, um, what, these, uh, what these particular individuals' data are going to do. Interesting from the scent point of view, um, one of the, the strengths with their offer is they work with marketers and they can provide cons- permissioned access to these data subjects or in the U.S. where I live, it's called consumers, right? They can validate their behavioral models on self-reported um, information from these individuals where they tell them, indeed, I do have this product ownership or I do go out to restaurants, I do go to the movies, I do go or cinema, as we'd say in Europe. Um, I do have these other behaviors. Uh, these are my political opinions to validate those models, which is so highly important. So personal data along with the behavioral data is going to become more important um, for the companies to be successful. And what's the incentive for the consumers in that model to actually validate their data? The SIP model is to, uh, is to give these consumers or data subjects access to opportunities to express their opinions, for which they receive um, an incentive monetary incentive, uh, which is, you know, which is redeemable in, in some cases, currencies, other cases, products, etc. Um, that, that ecosystem is dovetailing with the marketing ecosystem where the big value payoff is that in exchange for, um, for supplying personal data, they are going to get offers for products and services that are of interest to them. I mean, the first time this happened to me many years ago, my wife wanted a camera for Christmas. I love telling a story. So what the careful research is everybody does and you buy the camera. And of course, as soon as you buy it, you have instant remorse because you see something else. But, you know, next day I see a pop-up ad 
for a camera bag for that camera. And I say, wow, I didn't even think she needed a bag. Let me go buy this bag. And I, you know, as I was buying it, I said, wait a second. Um, I see the relationship there. And if the, if, if the predictive models are, are good and they give the consumer um, what the consumer is interested in, it's very, very powerful and the consumer doesn't mind. If one looks at the GDPR and the data protection authorities, you know, who um, care very deeply, um, these professionals, you know, these are government employees that look to protecting the rights of individuals. I mean, one of the questions I ask, is there maybe even a disconnect between them protecting the data subject or consumer and what the consumer wants? Because, you know, um, the GDPR, what's coming on its heels is something called the e-privacy regulation, which we can talk about as well, which is very uh, protective of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of putting forward a concept that uh, protecting people from tracking uh, consumers from tracking, you know, is that going to in somehow interfere with what consumers want? Of course, the worst case scenario now is the Facebook Cam Cambridge Analytica stuff, um, where you see, you see where you know players really abuse data and we're trying to manipulate opinions and and things of that nature. But that's interesting to see how that's going to come out. And our enforcement actions um, going to be driven by the fact that you know do the consumers you know, do they want that? If there's a big generational divide on all this stuff. Um, you know, younger people are very happy um, to the example I give is a 13 year old who's very happy to give all kinds of personal data for a free latte on their birthday. Um, you know, and, you know, they have a very different view on personal data um, than older individuals do. Uh, the SAS Institute did work um, in the UK asking about subject access requests, which is a component of the GDPR. And there was a, a directional difference, 21% of those in the 45 to 54 year old age group said they were gonna exercise their rights. 13% in the 18 to 24 year old age group said they were gonna exercise their rights. And this was of course of individuals from 18 plus. It was still interesting, that talks about how much press there is about GDPR, that you know even the 18 to 24 years, year olds were saying that they were going to do this. I think the flip side of that is also that if you do the analysis of attitudes towards advertising, those individuals who are in the 18 to 24 um, age group have a much um, higher intolerance for advertising. I did a survey a, a year or so ago and found that um, ad blocker usage overall is about 27% of the UK population. But when you look at 18 to 24, it goes up to 42. Um, and the intention to get an ad block is even higher. Um, and for some publications where they're exclusively um, catering for young gamers, for example, it can get up to 70 or 80%. That's interesting because you know, I think that, you know, the 18 to 20 year old gamer is like the holy grail of marketing. You know, for a long time in the market research to companies that provide access, they're like the hardest to get. They give them all kinds of extra incentives. The other thing I proffer as well, and I just see this in my daily life all the time, is the 18 to 24 year old gamers are very technically savvy. So they actually know what ad blockers are and can implement them. You know, I literally have a friend, um, you know, who has a handheld GPS and if his, uh, 14-year-old is in the car with him, he literally can't figure out, you know, how to use it. And he's, of course, an extreme case. Um, but you'd be surprised um, what people can and can't do. So I agree with you. I think they're more cynical. Um, you know, you see that in, in elections. Um, but, you know, um, yes, they, they've, they, you know, I think almost like a, uh, a, a covenant that they're looking for, you know, I'll give you uh, 
my personal data, but I want you to give me things of value that interest me. If you give me any kind of extraneous stuff, I'm going to disengage. Just going back to GDPR now, we, we've talked around the way in which it's affecting the industry. I know this is a tough thing to do in a succinct sentence, but would you be able to give us a bit of a definition um, or an explanation of what GDPR is as succinctly as possible? GDPR actually is technically a replacement for another regulation, something called the EU Data Directive. What the EU Data Directive did was, um, was set almost a baseline for privacy data protection um, in the EU. And each country had the, you know, had its own, has its own national data protection law. So what you had there is you had, you know, um, some countries that, you know, were more lenient, um, if you will, um, in terms of uh, their law. And a lot of it was in the interpretation of the Data Protection Authority to the most strict being the Germans. Um, you know, I deal a lot in my practices dealing with Germans and, you know, I'm dealing on one thing right now with GDPR and this concept of legitimate interest and, you know, uh, a very skilled uh, data protection attorney is absolutely no way. I still, everybody else in the market is doing it. The, the GDPR was an attempt, is an attempt, it has several political goals. It wants to simplify regulation for business, which it will, because instead of if you're a business, say, operating in Germany and you had a database with people in different EU countries, you could be dealing with complaints coming from different national regulators. Now, all the, all the complaints will filter up to something called a supervisory authority, which is going to be in Germany. Um, and uh, it also unifies regulation. So the other big thing, unlike the data directive, the same law and regulations apply throughout Europe. Um, uh, which means that it's, you know, it's, it's unified. It has very strict components. I, so in some ways, it's like a German interpretation of data protection for all of Europe. Um, and, um, you know, it is the, the most significant data protection law that's ever been introduced. It has many, many articles. Um, a lot of uh, companies I've seen who've made very good efforts to implement it in implementation realize, oh, what about this use case we didn't think about? So it is a pan-European um, protection of regulation, and the EU, unlike other jurisdictions like the United States, has an omnibus approach. So the GDPR regulates everything. It regulates healthcare data, it regulates financial data, it regulates the data of children, and very importantly, it regulates you know digital commerce, and that's how it impacts marketing. So you've got a global perspective on the impact of GDPR, and you've touched upon the differences between the EU states, with Germany being very strict, and other states um, maybe having a, a more pragmatic interpretation. But I'd like to now kind of shift the focus back on a global level, and, and could you let the audience know what the the rest of the world has to do? You know, GDPR will affect any business if they have one member of staff or one consumer who is an EU citizen. So do you think companies around the world understand the impact it's going to have yet? I think that some do. Um, it's highly correlated to the size of the entity. Um, so there are you know, a lot of companies, say US companies, for example, you know, smaller multinationals that, you know, are, say, 100 several hundred million up to 500 million. They're taking a strong focus on this. This is a real problem for smaller companies in marketing, marketing services, market research, you know, where they have a smaller percentage of their business. You know, a lot of these companies today in the data side have to be multinational. They have to be multi-sided, but they may not be that large. 
Um, so I think it varies by the size of the entity. I think there's um, a lot of um, uh, misunderstanding. I think that a year ago, I was hearing a lot from companies saying, well, it doesn't really apply to us, does it? And I say, no, indeed it does, because it applies to anybody um, that has uh, an operation in the EU or anybody that collects and processes personal data from subjects in the EU. It's an interesting area. The question is, um, who does it apply to? It's an EU citizen that GDPR applies. Um, there's general agreement in people that are interpreting this to say that, you know, say if an American business executive goes and lives in France for, you know, for an assignment, then the GDPR protects them. What um, I've seen disagreement on is if, you know, an EU citizen comes to America and lives there, what kind of protections do they have on GDP, uh, from GDPR? What American companies do in process day in the United States? There's general agreement if that processing happens in the EU where the data is stored and located impacts them. This is a very, very big challenge. In fact, I was in an industry meeting uh, last week where um, the Privacy Council for um, this professional association was asked the question because she deals with member questions all the time. And she says that she feels that um, her summary is that, you know, many, many companies are not prepared for it. They don't really understand all the requirements. Um, American companies, for example, um, if you look at American companies, they have a problem dealing with things like GDPR because they don't have the concept, like the concept of subject access requests. I mean, Americans aren't familiar with that. Um, the concept of data minimization, you know, collecting only the data that you need, which is a long-standing concept um, that has existed. You know, marketers and market researchers, if they have an opportunity to talk to somebody, if they feel they can extend the time of the transaction, or the, they'll collect all this data, and they create problems for themselves, and, and many times they don't use it. Um, so those are foreign. Um, there's a concept of PII versus uh, personal data. So personal data definition, which now in the GDPR includes things like IP address, mobile advertising ID, other kinds of identifiers. It could be used to link some personal data, identifiable data somebody are now considered personal. It doesn't exist in the United States. Um, our concept of PII, one of the government agencies, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, has a definition of PII, which starts to look somewhat like the European personal data de definition, this concept of other points that aren't in singularity identifiable can be put together. But Americans practice with this concept, you know, lawyers might tell you differently, but the practitioners say, well, the individual data point can be used to identify somebody like a name or an address or a telephone number, an email address. That's PII. Don't think of other things as being PII. So it's the concepts, the concepts are hard. Um, and again, the, I alluded to before, for companies outside of the EU where the, uh, where the, the personal data is a if in the EU is a minority of the portfolio. If I can get you to look into your crystal ball quickly over the next couple of years, how do you think this is going to pan out? Do you see any sort of trends already? One school of thought I've heard um, from slightly more enlightened data professionals is they think that the GDPR, the impact is going to be that other countries, the US in particular, will have to raise their process and their systems of data protection to match that new standard. So GDPR sets the standard which everyone else then matches. The other school of thought, which when I was in the US uh, a couple of months ago, I 
definitely heard more people say this, and I think you've alluded to it as well, is where those data companies, the big companies are saying, ah, well, we'll be able to use legitimate interest. We'll find a way around this. We don't really need to change what we're doing at all. And we're just going to keep on motoring. Which of those schools of thoughts do you think is going to come out um, as the, the more dominant over the next couple of years? Well, if you look at, well, let's hold the US for off to the side, but countries like Canada with, their, with PIPITA and Australia with the Australian Privacy Act, their laws are directly, almost directly based on the EU data directive, the, precur- the, the precursor to GDPR. They actually don't technically have adequacy decisions. So under the directive, they had adequacy decisions. So you could transfer data into Australia or Canada, and there was no special uh, provisions you had to make because the jurisdiction was viewed as having adequate protections. Um, they are definitely going to revise their, in my opinion, their laws to get that adequacy decision. And Australia is interest very privacy, data protection focused market. I think they're going to adopt this stuff. They have done other things independently like breach requirements and some forms of data localization um, where they take it very seriously. The US is an interesting market. You know, um, under the current you know, political situation, there's a deregulation um, effort in place. Um, so right now, I don't know. I think there's two things that I see. One thing is that if data protection is going to result in lower costs um, for businesses, because with less data protection, um, you increase the, the, the risk of security breaches, um, identity theft, and that gets to a point of cost, then it's going to be an economic necessity. The other thing in the U.S. market is political. Um, the Facebook Cambridge Analytica, I've actually advised the company, Cambridge Analytica, you know, wants us to do work with them. And you'd say, okay, um, you know, you need to look at this as a reputational point of view. And I said, you know, just go do go Google search today and see Cambridge Analytica news. And you see new revelations yesterday. There was a revelation that it's not 50 million profiles breached, but 87 million. Um, you know, the management is looked at as having problems. There's the investigations by our Federal Trade Commission. Um, the ICO in the UK is investigating Facebook, Cambridge, Analytica. And that generates um, uh, political awareness. And if it gets to a point that uh, voters see that um, data protection is something that they want, our Congress, despite um, its inability to act and act very quickly, there's an analog in something called the do not, uh, the do not uh, call legislation that we had um, several years ago, which went through both houses of Congress faster than any piece of, 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 uh, of legislation. The reason it was right before a congressional election cycle and people were just so fed up with all these nuisance calls from, tele, you know, from telemarketing that they saw as nuisance calls. Some, of course, legitimate. There were a lot of bad actors that don't you know, abide by the DAA rules for example, and uh, politicians saw this as an issue and they passed that law very quickly. So I think it's a combination of cost and it's a combination of um, uh, political, um, the, the political views of the population and getting reelected. And I think ultimately the future is only going to be more and more digital. So I think ultimately the United States is gonna have to do something. I can't predict on when, because it's gonna be smart for the economy and it's going to align with uh, with what voters want. 
And what do you think is going to be the, the sort of the way in which enforcement happens? I mean, even if they wanted to, I don't think the national regulators have the bandwidth to be able to go after lots of SMEs. So surely they're going to just go for a couple of, of those big scalps to make an example. I'm often asked, what's the EU going to do? And, you know, I made the point earlier that, you know, the regulators, they have, you know, they are regulating lots of activities and they have budget realities. Some regulators have more budget um, to go after, um, to go after, you know, reports of frauds, issues, et cetera. Um, but I think they're going to move cautiously because the regulation is so complex. There's a lot of misunderstanding and interpretation, difference in interpretation. Also, I think the risk for some people in the marketing space that uh, smaller companies that provide analytical services um, and are dealing with personal data services are subcontractors or provide service or partnership partner with some of the name brands and the name brands are going to be targets like you say i mean the regulators if they can they always count the name brands because they know they have deep pockets they know they have brand awareness more of the population understands and typically the infractions are are more significant the risk for small companies is that if there is something that there's an action the first thing that the company that's been charged um, with an allegation is going to bring all their subcontractors in, you know, and say, these are the people we're working with. And then if you are called in, you're going to have one immediate problem that you're going to have to go and engage expensive uh, external counsel with specific expertise in this thing. And the worst, of course, is, is the impact of brand reputation, right? So if, you know, say that you are subject to one of the fines, which is 20 million euros or 4% of revenue that could be higher than 20 million. Like a big company can probably weather that fine. Um, but their biggest concern is brand reputation because a lot of customers will hear that and say, okay, um, wow, that doesn't sound good. Do I have an alternative for that? And they're going to, uh, you know, they're going to have to become expert at like the old, like Johnson and Johnson was with a Tylenol scare and companies are going to have to have, not only breach notification, incident response, but you know risk management and incident response at the corporate level to you know to figure out how to to react. I expect that the first year will be quiet, you know, but it's going to be an interesting landscape to say the least. Could we maybe so now look at how marketers listening to this podcast? What are the things that you would advise them? to do. So if we start off by thinking about what are the three most important things they need to think about or being or be actioning in their businesses right now to remain compliant. Yeah, the first thing that they should do, identify if if it is indeed in scope, right? I think that m- companies have done that at probably an adequate level, but if for some reason they haven't dealt with this, they want to understand it. The second piece they need to do is to um, appoint somebody that's in charge. Um, any company that processes a significant amount of, of, uh, of personal uh, data, or if that's core to their business, um, they're going to probably need a data protection officer. Because the first step is identify somebody who is um, who's responsible. The third thing is to do what's called a data protection impact analysis to understand what your risks are, what your exposure is. How much data you have, you know, what, you know, do you need to implement a subject access request procedure and be prepared to do that? To my earlier comment um, about uh, the study that SAS did, they said that 
of the people they surveyed said they were going to exercise some form of, of, you know, of their rights to access, understand their data. So there's a lot of people that are fearing a big flood of inquiries around data. So those would be the three things, three most important things. So the data protection impact analysis will then tell you, you know, what you then need to do. Um, but those are the, the top three things I would suggest. In terms of the things which marketers need to avoid over the next couple of months, are there big landmines? Are there big uh, issues that they could, that they should know about by now that they should be aiming to avoid? Yes, yeah, so the first thing that they need to do is to become GDPR aware, right? Um, and so they need to make sure that any statements they make to anybody um, about GDPR compliance, that they're saying the right thing and that they show that they are educated and they're acting on it. Uh, for example, if a regulator comes in, they're going to look for evidence of a compliance program. If they find that, they're going to be much more inclined to be uh, cooperative and look to end up with a warning rather than a fine. Um, so I think that's first. And the second thing that they would do is I'm a big believer that data protection compliance in, a new, in the new economy is going to be less expensive than it is um, not doing compliance in the long term. What I mean by that is that, you know, the concept of data protection by design, which is a, uh, a core requirement of the GDPR, that as you build your products, make sure those products are going to be um, compliant with the GDPR. Um, because if you don't, you may find yourself, um, you know, 80% of the way done and realize, wow, we can't launch this product. Um, and the developers will always tell you, well, if you told me this um, when we started, it would have cost you $10,000. Now it's going to cost you $200,000 because we have to rework everything. Um, and make sure that, uh, that that's part of their process. Um, because otherwise, um, they might have a, a world where, you know, because of under, other underlying more structural things about their databases, their data hygiene, what they're collecting may preclude them um, from uh, launching products. And of course, the worst case scenario is that if they aren't compliant, they could see a fine, um, which again, depending on the entity, could be more of a problem in reputation than you know the financial impact to an income statement. So we've talked about quite a few different aspects of the GDPR and how it's going to affect businesses. Now, people listening to this probably aware of quite a lot of content already on GDPR, which is out there. We, we seem to be at peak GDPR. But what would you recommend as the best places to go to educate themselves about GDPR and to really sort of get into the, the detail that you alluded to then? One of the things that they might do is that the Article 29 Working Party, which is a, a group that has been providing interpretation on the data directive, which is made up of uh, these uh, uh, the staff from the various national data protection authorities, which is going to become the supervisory board under GDPR, um, they have uh, uh, a website. Um, the EU has a website which is excellent um, uh, resource. I, I refer to the Article 29 Working Party because they're providing a lot of interpretation. Um, they have also made the provision that uh, they are happy with an outsourced data protection officer or an expert in this area which is interesting back to Germany, is a booming cottage industry. It's almost like the Sarbanes-Oxley thing that happened in the United States, where you know people had expertise were charging whatever they wanted um, to get the work done. Um, they realized that small businesses won't have that expertise, but maybe to consult somebody, to give them overall guidance. 
And also another source that I like to, if you have a professional um, association that you belong to, um, they are all uh, providing um, very good GDPR education and informational services that are particularly valuable because they understand the context of the vertical or the business. Yeah, I think that, that's very good advice. And I've seen some good work from the DMA uh, and the, the IDM as well, sort of um, providing uh, analysis on, based on the the central ICO framework, but then more relevant to, to the industry. The UK is an interesting case because of Brexit, right? Um, I've seen companies talk about, oh, selling to American companies. You know, use us, we're in the UK, we're GDPR compliant. And this, a couple of companies did that. And I would say like, wow, that's a really interesting message because they don't really understand the issues with Brexit. So before Brexit, on May 25th, it's gonna to apply to the, uh, to the UK. Um, and I'm confident that the uh, UK government, um, which is already committed to, um, to revising your, the UK Data Protection Act, um, the House of Lords actually has issued um, a paper on pursuing an adequacy decision to have the EU government, the EU Commission see the UK as a, uh, a jurisdiction that has adequate protections. Um, there's a thing called the Future of Partnership paper. Um, actually, last year, GDPR was mentioned in the Queen's speech. And I said that was a really interesting thing. And you could see the importance to the economy. But, you know, the thing about the UK is that I've always thought that the ICO was a very good regulator um, in terms of the information that they produced. Of course, for, you know, for an American who with language skills like me is a one-trick pony, only speaks English, um, they provide lots and lots of good information. I've referred people to them, particularly in the United States, because it's all produced in English and it's very thoughtful. Um, and it's, it's very helpful. And they also have done a wonderful work, in my opinion, um, under the data directive and under the interpretation of the, uh, of the, the UK Data Protection Act. So it's interesting you touch upon Brexit there, and there's a, a lot of questions we could put there. But w- what I have taken away from the government's position on this is that they want to uphold the same standard of data protection, which has been set out in GDPR when the UK leaves the EU. And moreover, I, I've heard some ministers um, who have actually said that they want to almost pioneer and make data the one of the key industries for a post-Brexit Britain um, and that not only would that be upholding but almost going further on some data protection but also being a sort of pragmatic um, middle way which is I suppose what Britain has always been a little bit between the EU which can be quite strict on some of their data interpretation and the US which is as we've discussed um, coming at it from a slightly different perspective. I even refer to it as I call it Anglo GDPR you're going to see Anglo GDPR which I think is going to be uh, going to be very careful in its interpretation, um, and I think is going to bring um, that pragmatic approach that uh, the ICO has always brought, um, which will help commerce. You know, and if that's accomplished, it's going to be really interesting, because if they can, if the UK can lead in data, which is a good strategic investment or strategy from a government point of view, um, and operate in the context of GDPR. Uh, it could indeed be a wonderful, wonderful model. So unfortunately, we have to wrap things up now. It's been great to talk to you. We've had so much value and knowledge coming from from your experience there, giving us the context, but also giving us some practical advice on how to apply GDPR to our business. So just to wrap things up, I wonder whether you could just tell us um, a little bit more about how we can keep in touch with you and follow the developments from your perspective and, and since perspective over the next few months. Sure. Um, you can contact me via email. My email at synth is peter.miller 
at synth.com. I can be contacted through synth, which is www.synth.com. Those are the best ways to get to me. And uh, love to hear uh, people's thoughts or comments or questions. We're going to be doing a lot of work in this in the coming year. Well, Peter, once again, thank you so much for sharing all of that knowledge with us today. And thank you for joining us here on the Clixy Digital Marketing Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Find more episodes at clickzcom forward slash podcasts or follow me on Twitter at Tim for Change. We'll be talking to more of our experts over the next few weeks. Until then, keep up to date with ClickZ and don't forget to review us on iTunes and Stitcher. ClickZ, the original digital business intelligence company founded in 1997, providing best practice advice, trends and insight from leading analysts and practitioners to a global community of more than 300,000 digital marketing and e-commerce professionals. Thank you for listening and bye for now.